This is the American Tapestry Project, where we seek to weave America's many stories into a tapestry of American possibilities. Welcome back, fellow weavers, and if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the American Tapestry Project. I'm Andrew Roth, a scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. In this episode, we begin a two-part series on the lifetimes and music of Irving Berlin. Berlin's life celebrates the American Tapestry Project's immigrant experience. As we've said before, the immigrant experience is one of the quintessential American stories. America, America was built by immigrants. Everyone listening to this program, unless you're a Native American, an indigenous person, everyone listening to this program is descended from an immigrant. Some sooner, some later, some willing, some unwilling, but... All Americans are descended from someone who came, who came from somewhere else. Whether you are descended from John Winthrop, who founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630, or Carl Schurz, who came in the great wave of German Catholics in the 1850s, or John L. Sullivan, son of an Irish immigrant in the 1840s, or, like me, grandson of Michael Roth and Joseph Soldatus, who came to America among the great wave of Southern and Eastern Europeans as the 19th century turned into the 20th, we are, we are a nation of immigrants. The life of Irving Berlin illustrates that experience in all its details and all its struggles and all its triumphs as new Americans then and now fight for inclusion into American society by appealing, by appealing to America's founding ideals of liberty, equality, and opportunity. And, as a bonus, Berlin's life does it to the marvelous sound of his musical genius. Irving Berlin practically wrote the American Songbook. Exploring his life and times, we'll hear selections from many of his songs, particularly how his life celebrates the arc of the American experience, from rags to riches, and the popular culture he and his contemporaries invented, a culture of popular entertainment, music, sports, dining, theater, and movies that transformed that transformed America in the early and middle 20th century. In our next episode, we'll focus solely on Irving Berlin as we ask and answer, what are the top 10 Irving Berlin tunes of all time? What are their backstories? When, why, and for whom were they written? For now, however, today, the life and times of Irving Berlin and the invention of American popular culture. was Irving Berlin? Who was this man, Walter Cronkite said, helped write the story of this country, capturing the best of who we are and the dreams that shape our lives? Born Israel Berlin in Russia, more accurately at Talachin in Belarus, or maybe in Tayuman, Siberia, Berlin immigrated to the United States with his family as a child. He was only five years old when the family landed at Ellis Island on September 14, 1893. They settled in New York City, where Berlin would eventually start his musical career, a career that spanned six decades and produced a vast number of lyrical hits that became standards, standards in the great American songbook. In that 60-plus year career, what did Berlin accomplish? Well, as I've already mentioned, he transcended his immigrant roots to become an iconic American. Incredibly, 
Musically, Berlin was largely self-taught and could only play the piano in the key of F-sharp. Later, he used a specially designed piano to transpose his songs to other keys. Although self-taught, Berlin wrote over 1,500 songs, many of which have become classics. Some of his most famous songs include White Christmas, God Bless America, There's No Business Like Show Business, Blue Skies, Cheek to Cheek, and Putting on the Ritz. He practically invented the American theatrical musical on Broadway, and then he transplanted it to Hollywood. He wrote the scores for 20 Broadway shows, such as 1946's Annie Get Your Gun, and earlier, in the 19-teens, he was a key composer for Florenz Ziegfeld's Ziegfeld's Follies. And, before that, created a national dance craze with Watch Your Step, featuring two of Broadway's earliest great stars, Vernon and Irene Castle. Among his dozen or so Hollywood musicals were Holiday Inn, which featured White Christmas, and 1946's Blue Skies, featuring both the title tune and Fred Astaire's classic performance of Putting on the Ritz, or On the Avenue, featuring, as Bette Midler sings, I've Got My Love to Keep Me Warm. The snow is snowing And the wind is blowing But I can weather the storm What do I care How much it may storm Icicles fall What do I care If icicles fall I've got my love To keep me warm Over the course of his long life, Berlin lived to be 101. He received many awards, including the Oscar for Best Song for White Christmas in 1943's Holiday Inn. President Truman awarded him the Army's Medal of Merit for his support of America's military veterans by donating the proceeds from God Bless America to veterans' causes. He also received the Congressional Gold Medal from President Eisenhower for his sustained patriotic service to his adopted country. But Berlin's legacy is his music, which captured the spirit and the ethos of America. How did this immigrant accomplish so much? What was his immigrant experience? How does Berlin's story typify the experience of that vast tidal wave of new Americans in the late 19th and early 20th century? And tidal wave it was. Into a nation whose population in 1900 was approximately 76 million, between 1900 and 1915, more than 15 million new immigrants arrived. If the Irish and German Catholics in the mid-19th century unsettled the dominant Protestant, largely British and North European Americans, then, just before World War I, the flood of Southern and Eastern Europeans rattled the sensibilities of older Americans. On radio or in a podcast, numbers can quickly get bewildering. 
that during this period, approximately 3.9 million Italians, 1.1 million Hungarian, 2 million Eastern European and Russian Jews, and approximately 3 million Poles, Czechs, Slovenians, Romanians, and others came to America. Moreover, they weren't Protestants, but a melange of Roman Catholics, Eastern Russian and Greek Orthodox Christians, Russian and Eastern European Jews, and a slew of other smaller denominations. Keep in mind, in 1900, there were only 76 million Americans. Adding 15 million meant that about one in five Americans were now different. Not Protestant, not British, not from the British Isles, and not Northern European. Americans' reactions to this culture-shifting impact were split. Business and industry greatly approved. Why? Well, 19th century America's burgeoning industrial expansion needed workers. Solution? Bring in desperate people fleeing oppression and poverty. Desperate people willing to work in deep mines, willing to tend blast furnaces, and willing to do the other dirty jobs an industrial economy demanded. But others... Others bitterly oppose these new Americans and their impact on American culture. We've discussed this before in previous episodes you can find on the WQLN website and other podcast sites. The opposition of some Americans resulted in the Immigration Act of 1924, which created nationality quotas discriminating against Southern and Eastern Europeans. But in the meantime, those new Americans transformed and enriched American culture. While his great success was hardly typical, Irving Berlin's experience, background, and struggles mirrored the immigrant experience at the turn of the 20th century. By the way, our theme was composed by Antonin Dvorak, a Czech emigre who settled for a time in New York City, taught and composed music, tutored Erie's own Harry Burley, and wrote his string quartet number 12, our theme, known as the American, one summer while vacationing in Iowa. Berlin's experience mirrored the experience of many immigrants in multiple ways. First, his family was fleeing persecution. Second, they settled in urban areas. Third, they encountered discrimination and economic hardship. Fourth, They struggled to adapt to their new culture while trying to maintain some sense of their own ethnicity. Fifth, through tenacity and extreme hard work, they ultimately succeeded, found security, and contributed to American culture. Irving Berlin's life journey, from fleeing persecution in Russia, facing economic challenges in the U.S., and eventually achieving significant success, reflects the broader arc of the American immigrant experience. Let's trace that arc's path through the life and times of Irving Berlin. While many immigrants were and are fleeing poverty and persecution, this was especially true of Russian Jewish immigrants in the late 19th and early early 20th century. They were also fleeing systemic persecution in the Russian Empire that led to pogroms, violent and deadly mob attacks, and random violence that made life untenable for many Jewish families. Such violent persecution directly led Berlin's parents, Moses and Lena Lipkin Bailin, to flee Russia seeking a better life in America. They were impoverished. Reflecting on his childhood, Berlin said many years later that he was unaware he was desperately poor because, because he knew no other life. Berlin's family were subject to violent assaults. Berlin's biographer, Lawrence Burgreen, 
quoted Berlin, who said he had only one memory of his life in Russia. He was lying on a blanket by the side of a road, watching his house burn to the ground. It had been set on fire by an anti-Semitic mob. Arriving in 1893, the Bailin family settled in the Lower East Side of New York City, joining a vast tapestry of immigrants. The neighborhood, with its cacophony of languages, cultures, and aspirations, made for a tough beginning. They lived at 330 Cherry Street in a three-room tenement. Unable to find work as a cantor, Berlin's father worked in a kosher meat market. He died a few years after their arrival. Eight-year-old Irving worked to support his family. He sold newspapers in the streets, peddling the evening journal. His mother worked as a midwife. Selling newspapers in the Bowery, Berlin heard the music and sounds coming from the local saloons. He started singing in the street as he hustled newspapers. People gave him coins for his songs. He became a street singer, scuffling to help support his family. No surprise, he was good at it. He became a singing waiter and plugger of songs. A song plugger was hired by song publishers to promote sheet music, which was how songs were advertised and sold before the advent of recorded music. Berlin plugged tunes in bars and saloons. Thinking he was a burden on his family, he left home at 14 and lived in a boarding house with other homeless immigrant boys. Living on the streets, scuffling for money, plugging songs in saloons, Berlin became streetwise and a shrewd survivalist. By 1905 or 1906, he began plugging songs at Tony Pastor's Music Hall in Union Square and later at Pelham's Cafe in Chinatown. Composed with the help of a cafe pianist, Berlin sold his first lyric for 37 cents. Yes, 37 cents. Doesn't sound like much. It wasn't. 37, 1907 cents equals about two and a half dollars today. You'd buy a small coffee at Starbucks. But it was a start. The tune, the tune was Marie from sunny Italy. Italian dialect songs were the new vogue. Working at Pelham's, the owner, Mike Salter, asked Berlin if he could write an Italian dialect song. He did, with the help of Mike Nicholson, Pelham's resident pianist. Berlin and Nicholson sold the song to publisher Joseph Stern for 75 cents. When it was published, Berlin's name was misspelled on the sheet as I Berlin, not the Berlin or Bylin Berlin himself used. He liked the name. Its spelling made it easier to pronounce. He anglicized his original first name, Israel, Izzy, to Irving. Although dated, and with more than a few howlers as rhymes, it was a hit. Two years later, Berlin was appointed staff lyricist for the Ted Snyder Company. Two years after that, he wrote Alexander's Ragtime Band. He was on his way. Here's a clip of a 1947 radio interview in which Berlin relates the story to Frank Sinatra. Because Irving, it really gives us a lot of kicks to help you celebrate your 40th anniversary. Let's see. Now, if this is your 40th anniversary, that means that you wrote your first song back in uh, 1907, hey? What was that first song, Irving? Well, it was called Marie from Sunny Italy. Don't tell me. Yeah. Don't tell me I can picture it all. You were a wealthy American playboy. You meet this ravish, ravishingly beautiful creature named Marie. It's a moonlit night, and in the Bay of Naples, the two of you all alone in a gondola. Well, uh, you're close, Frank. Only I wasn't a wealthy playboy. I, wasn't a, I was a singing waiter. It wasn't the Bay of Naples. It was in 12 Pell Street, New York City. Oh. It wasn't a gondola. It was a joint. <laughs> and I'm, I'm afraid I didn't know Marie. She was just a rhyme for Italy. But it, it was a hit, wasn't it? I mean, a gold mine, huh? <laughs> a gold mine. 
Well, Frank, that song earned exactly 33 cents. Everyone needs a break. Some mentor or older colleague who sees potential and gives you a chance. Berlin's first break came in 1907 when, as we noted, he was asked to write Marie from Sunny Italy by Pelham owner Mike Salter. He got another in 1908. Working at Jimmy Kelly's saloon, he met a staff writer at Harry Fontilzer's songwriting company. The new friend told Fontilzer about the young musical wizard at Pelham's. Fontilzer hired him. Fontilzer was the older brother of Albert Fontilzer, who, with Jack Norwith, wrote, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. In 1909, at Fontilzer's, Berlin hooked up with Ted Snyder, who introduced him to the world of Tin Pan Alley, the cradle of American popular music in the early 20th century. Snyder himself later became famous for composing The Sheik of Araby and Who's Sorry Now, the latter becoming a 1950s-era hit for Connie Francis. But much earlier, Snyder and Berlin began composing for the Broadway stage. Their 1910 musical, Up and Down Broadway, got them started. And then, in 1911, Berlin wrote his first mega-hit, Alexander's Ragtime Band. So, in five years, from 1906 to 1911, Berlin went from a street singer and singing waiter to songwriter to denizen of Tin Pan Alley frantically writing words to others' composers' music, to musical star performer performing his own compositions, to writing music for Broadway. To borrow a phrase, a star was born. But first, what was Tin Pan Alley? Why did so many Jewish and other immigrants flock to it? How did it invent American popular culture entertainment and the popular culture of the 20th century? New York, at the turn of the 20th century, experienced a musical revolution. The phrase Tin Pan Alley refers to the entire musical culture unfolding in New York, unfolding in the period between the 1880s and the 1950s, and the music publishers and songwriters who dominated popular culture at the time. In a previous episode, we tracked the rise of Take Me Out to the Ball Game from its origin in Tin Pan Alley in 1908, as Jack Norwith sought to woo Trixie Fraganza, the era's great vaudeville comedienne. Although the phrase is a metaphor for the entire early 20th century music industry, Tin Pan Alley was also an actual physical locale. Its nexus was a small section of the city located on West 28th Street between between 5th and 6th Avenue, where many music publishers' offices were located. The street became a hive of creativity, producing a flurry of songs that defined American popular music. The name, Tin Pan Alley, originated from dozens of pianos playing simultaneously in one city block's proliferating music publishing houses. Their overlapping pounding sounded like the banging of tin pans. It was here that Berlin saw an opportunity to showcase his talent. A rough-and-tumble world, for the bold, it presented numerous opportunities. The music publishers strung out on 28th Street, Tin Pan Alley, functioned like factories. And the songwriters of Tin Pan Alley toiled much like factory workers, churning out new songs to meet the public's demand for fresh material. They often worked in pairs, a lyricist and a composer, and were given specific themes or ideas for their songs. Hence, the partnership of Berlin and Snyder. In those days, before recorded music, pop hits were measured in sheet music sales. 
The primary aim of Tin Pan Alley was to produce songs that would sell vast amounts of sheet music. The most effective way to do that was to have your songs adopted by vaudeville performers for their acts or to become part of a Broadway production. We heard about that in Albert Fentilzer and Jack Norwest pitching Take Me Out to the Ball Game to Norworth's vaudeville partner Nora Bays. Bays was a superstar of the era who made any composer's song a hit if she agreed to sing it. One of those composers was George M. Cohen. He was, he was the Andrew Lloyd Webber of his time. He had numerous hits. Here's a clip of Bays singing Cohen's World War I anthem, Over There. Besides Take Me Out to the Ball Game and Over There, other great songs from Tin Pan Alley's heyday include The Sidewalks of New York, A Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight, Bill Bailey, Won't You Please Come Home, In the Good Old Summertime, Give My Regards to Broadway by George M. Cohen, Shine Little Glowworm, Shine On Harvest Moon by Nora Bays and Jack Norworth, and By the Light of the Silvery Moon. Here is a clip from Cohen's Give My Regards to Broadway, sung by James Cagney from 1942's Yankee Doodle Dandy, for which Cagney won the Oscar for his portrayal of Cohen, the Broadway impresario. Give my regards to Broadway. Remember me to Herald Square. Tell all the gang at 42nd Street that I will soon be there. Of how I'm yearning to mingle with that old time broad. Give my regards to old Broadway and say that I'll be there ever. With the rise of radio, phonographs, and eventually the movies, Tin Pan Alley's influence began to wane. By the mid 20th century, the center of the music publishing industry moved to other locations and the rock and roll era signaled a significant shift in musical taste. Though the era of Tin Pan Alley ended long ago, the standards set by its songwriters and publishers created the modern music business. Earlier I asked, why did so many Jewish and other immigrants flock to Tin Pan Alley in particular and show business in general as a portal or as portals into American society? The answer is relatively simple. Tin Pan Alley, vaudeville and show business in general, were more cosmopolitan, more sophisticated, and, by orders of magnitude, less provincial and bigoted than American society in general. It was a world in which what counted was not where you came from or which religion you practiced or the color of your skin, but what you could do. It was a world where talent counted. This was particularly true for Jewish immigrants. As I said, all immigrants, including Russian and Eastern European Jews, came seeking economic opportunity. Many of these immigrants were often limited in the jobs they could get because of language barriers, lack of formal education, or blatant anti-immigrant bigotry. 
The entertainment industry, especially the emerging field of popular music, provided a relatively open avenue for ambitious individuals. Because Jewish communities in Eastern Europe had a rich cultural background and musical tradition, klezmer music, for instance, was a popular form of Jewish folk music from this region. This musical foundation, combined with an eagerness to assimilate into American culture, made songwriting an attractive profession for some Jewish immigrants. Another reason immigrants found opportunity in the entertainment industry is that most, most settled in urban areas. For a combination of reasons, including its existing Jewish population, which as an aside was not particularly welcoming to the new arrivals from the shuttles of Eastern Europe, but uh, that would require another episode to explain. Well, as I said, for a combination of reasons, many Jewish immigrants settled in New York City, which was the epicenter of the American entertainment industry. During this period, say from 1875 to 1925 and beyond, America was rapidly urbanizing. People were abandoning rural life for the city's bright lights. That phenomenon's aftermath still roils American politics. It also impacted entertainment, because the new, growing urban audience was hungry for entertainment. This demand led to the expansion of vaudeville theaters, Nickelodeons, literally a Nicola ticket movie theaters, and music halls. In addition, during this era, there was a shift in entertainment consumption. Instead of making music at home around the piano, people began to seek music as a form of public entertainment. This change created a massive demand for new songs and compositions, which Tin Pan Alley was well positioned to supply. This proximity to the bustling world of Tin Pan Alley provided a natural entry point for those with musical talent. Since the popular music industry was still in its infancy, there weren't as many entrenched gatekeepers or strict hierarchies as in more established fields. This made it easier for newcomers, including those from immigrant backgrounds, to break into the scene. Writing songs required minimal upfront financial investment, especially compared to other business ventures. For those with talent and drive, it was possible to make a mark with just a catchy tune and compelling lyrics. The industry encouraged collaboration. Songwriters, composers, lyricists, publishers worked closely together, fostering a supportive environment. As we saw, when Irving Berlin met Mike Salter, then the unknown staffer at Harry von Tilzer's who championed him, and then Ted Snyder, when early Jewish songwriters and music publishers found success in Tim Pan Alley, they often provided mentorship and opportunities for other up-and-coming talents from similar backgrounds. This created a feedback loop, with success breeding further success within the community. All of this cultural ferment coincided with the nascent rise of mass media. With advancements in printing technology, it became easier to mass-produce and distribute sheet music. Additionally, the growth of phonographs and recorded music and, later, radio broadcasting provided new avenues for songs to reach broad audiences. Ambitious individuals capitalized on these emerging technologies. The vaudeville circuit provided a platform for new songs to be introduced to broad audiences. If a song became a hit in the vaudeville theaters, it could quickly lead to substantial sheet music sales. Against the background of the new entertainment industry, the American Dream's themes of aspiration, love, struggle, and hope resonated deeply with the immigrant experience. Echoing against the backdrop of New York City's melting pot of diverse communities and cultures, 
This created a demand for a wide variety of music. Jewish songwriters, with their first-hand understanding of these feelings, were adept at translating such emotions into either catchy ethnic songs or universally appealing love songs. As a result, of all these factors transforming American culture in the early 20th century, the entertainment industry, including music and theater, was one of the few sectors where immigrants and Jews could break through societal prejudices. The contributions of Jewish songwriters, composers, and publishers in Tin Pan Alley left an indelible mark on American music. Figures like Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, and Jerome Kern, among many others, crafted songs and musical narratives that have become essential threads in the fabric of the American tapestry. For example, Jerome Kern was the son of German-Jewish immigrants long settled in New York City. Paul Robeson was one of the great African-American artists of the era, a great athlete, a Rhodes Scholar, and a magnificent singer. Here's a clip of Robeson singing Jerome Kern's Old Man River from Kern's 1927 Broadway hit, Showboat. But I keeps laughing instead of crying. I must keep fighting until I'm dying. As I said at the beginning, this episode examines the life and times of Irving Berlin. So far, it's focused on the times. We'll get back to the life in a moment and do a deep dive into Berlin's music in the next episode. Before getting back to Irving Berlin's amazing career in music, let's take a quick look at another question I asked earlier. I asked, how did Tin Pan Alley invent the American popular mass entertainment culture? That might be a bit of a stretch because... The radical change in American culture at the beginning of the 20th century had many causes, but entertainment, mass, commercially produced entertainment, was a new phenomenon. It wasn't only American, it was, to a certain extent, global, but it was primarily an American invention, and it was a radical departure from earlier experience. Earlier entertainment experience was largely, not only, but largely home-based. Then, in the 19th century, and with accelerating speed in the 20th, all of that left the home and moved out into the commercial world. It changed America in ways we still, we still do not completely understand. It's the foundational undercurrent of our culture wars. Or, maybe more accurately, our culture wars are its logical extension. Or, at least, one of its logical extensions. How did it happen? That story's too long for now. I'll come back to it in future episodes. A sketch of the transformation you and I take for granted, but a hundred years ago was a brave new world, looks something like this. Home, think Courier and Ives, was the heart of American culture. It was the heart of commerce, think small shops. It was the heart of education, think mom teaching the children the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic. It was the heart of entertainment. Think of the family gathered round the piano singing songs. Every middle-class home and many poorer ones had a piano, and family members knew how to play it. Home, home was where Americans dined, danced, and died. 
Then it all began to change. Learning, dining, dancing, singing, even burying among a myriad of other activities left the home for more commercialized, centralized, and public settings during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Very briefly, here are some notable examples. Cooking and dining. While home-cooked meals remained, and still remain, central to family life, the late 19th and early 20th centuries saw a rise in restaurants, diners, and fast food outlets. As urban areas grew, dining out became more commonplace, not just for special occasions, but also for daily needs, especially for those who lived in boarding houses or tenements without proper cooking facilities. Restaurants are new things. You would have looked hard for a restaurant in pre-Civil War America. When you found one, it would have either been a rare one for the elite or the earthier, males-only world of the tavern. Fast food would have been incomprehensible to 19th century Americans. Clothing production. Homemade clothes gave way to mass-produced garments with the rise of the textile industry and department stores. Ready-to-wear fashion became widely available, making it less necessary for individuals or families to produce their own clothing. As recently as the mid-20th century, darning socks and sewing clothes were a staple function of home life. Do you own a sewing machine? It would have been incomprehensible to your grandmother, and certainly to your great-grandmother, not to mention your great-great-grandmother, and it was a gendered issue. It would have been incomprehensible to them that sewing was a niche hobby pursued for pleasure. Laundry. The development of commercial laundries and, later, laundromats, began to replace the traditional home-based chore of washing clothes by hand. This was especially true in urban environments where space was limited. Seemingly mundane, this small cultural shift played a role in the rise of the women's movement. Entertainment. More in tune, (laughs) the pun intentional, more in tune to our survey of the life and times of Irving Berlin, beyond music, other forms of entertainment also shifted from the home to commercial ventures. This includes the rise of commercial movie theaters, which began as Nickelodeons and evolved into the grand movie palaces of the 1920s and the megaplexes of 2023 and the seemingly endless stadium and arena concerts of contemporary America. Sports. While local and informal sports games were and still are played, the late 19th and early 20th century saw the professionalization of sports. Baseball, football, boxing, and other sports began to be played in large stadiums with paid athletes attracting mass audiences. The professional sports and the quasi-professional intercollegiate sports that obsess Americans are, historically speaking, a new thing. They were a byproduct of the Industrial Revolution. They were essentially invented in the mid-19th century, came to dominance with radio just before World War II, and, combined with television, have transformed American society since the 1960s. Reading and publishing. While reading as a pastime did not shift away from the home, the nature of what people were reading did change. The rise of mass-produced newspapers, magazines, and paperback books made a wider variety of reading material available to the general public. One of the casualties of this was both family-based and local storytelling or oral traditions. When was the last time you gathered as a family to listen to one of the elders tell you the history of who you are 
and how you got to here and now. Brewing and distilling. Home brewing and distilling were common practices, but the late 19th and early 20th century saw the rise of large breweries and distilleries, leading to more standardized alcoholic products available on a wide scale. In fact, home brewing and distilling were, for a time, illegal. Now, while we have a resurgence of local craft beers and spirits, home brews remain a rarity. Education. While education transitioned to more formal settings throughout the 19th century, by the turn of the 20th century, structured, centralized school systems with standardized curricula became the norm, moving education from informal home or community settings to formal school buildings. All of these shifts, driven by a combination of technological innovations, urbanization, changing social norms, and economic factors, marked the transition from a more agrarian, localized way of life to an urbanized, industrialized society. These changes set the foundation for many aspects of modern life and culture, including, in our time, an accelerating homeschooling and anti-public school movement fragmenting America's tapestry of stories. One of the positive impacts of all these shifts from home-based to commercial activities was easing the path into American society for immigrants. The cultural fluidity of the times did away with old taboos and created new opportunities, one of which was ragtime and the creation of American pop, music for the masses. Come on in here, come on in here. Oh, you dog. Alexander's ragtime band. Come on in here, come on in here. About the best band in the land. Take and play a bugle call like you never heard before. So natural that you want to go to war That's just the bestest band What am Oh, honey lamb Come on along, come on along Let me take you by the hand Up to the man, up to the man Who's the leader of the band And if you can hear the Swanee River Made in right time Come on in here, come on in here, come on in here, come on in here, Alexander's Ragtime Band. That was Bing Crosby and Al Jolson singing Irving Berlin's first great mega hit, Alexander's Ragtime Band. It was 1911. Although he had had some earlier success, with this tune, Berlin truly made his mark. Berlin had been writing lyrics for five to six years now, but he realized that true success required that he write melodies to accompany his lyrics. Remember, Berlin was a self-taught musician. He'd hum or sing a melody that a colleague transcribed. Later, he became more adept at the piano and did it himself. For a time, there was always a question about who wrote Berlin's melodies. The consensus is that Berlin created the melody that others later transcribed. In 1911, Borrowing from popular march tunes, a bugle call from Swanee River, and rhythms from Scott Joplin's and others' popular rags, Berlin crafted Alexander's Ragtime Band, which isn't really a ragtime song. Regardless, Alexander's Ragtime Band wasn't just a song, it was a phenomenon. Its unique blend of rhythm and melody was unlike anything audiences had heard before. Making musical waves across the nation, the song made Berlin a member of the musical elite. He was now a star in his own right. The song's success was a testament to Berlin's innovative approach. 
Berlin's integration into American society rode on the wave of his own assimilationist genius as he seamlessly melded diverse musical influences into catchy, memorable tunes. Berlin's climb to the top of the music industry mirrored his personal journey of assimilation and discovery into American society, his adopted homeland. As he personally became more deeply ingrained in American society, so did his music. His career in the 1910s and 20s as a Broadway composer, and then in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s as a Hollywood composer, revealed that Berlin wasn't just composing songs, he was crafting narratives of a nation in flux. In his music, he was telling his version of the American story, of the American tapestry. Let's take a look, let's take a listen to a sample of his Broadway and Hollywood work and then conclude this program by examining the backstories of two of Berlin's most famous songs, White Christmas and God Bless America. First, Berlin on Broadway. His impact on Broadway was profound. His career stretched over several decades, but let's briefly trace it from before World War I until 1930. 1914's Watch Your Step was Berlin's first complete Broadway score. A review, a type of show closely associated with Berlin, it was a mix of multiple parts, sort of a variety show, vaudeville all dressed up and come to Broadway. Watch Your Step showcased his innovative style and marked the beginning of Berlin's shift from primarily a songwriter to a composer of theatrical scores. That was Judy Garland from Berlin's 1915 Stop, Look, Listen. Another review, it cemented Berlin's reputation as a Broadway talent. I Love a Piano hinted at the broader musical themes he'd explore throughout his career. Partnering with Victor Herbert, Berlin did another review in 1916, The Century Girl. But he became an American institution with 1918's patriotic musical Yip Yip Yifink. Written while Berlin was serving in the U.S. Army during World War I, its finale, Oh, How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning, blended humor and heartfelt sentiment, giving voice to many a soldier's 5 a.m. lament. As he would do many times, Berlin gave all proceeds to a community center for soldiers. It was not the last time Berlin displayed his deep patriotism and commitment to the military. Here's Berlin, waking up, oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. I've been a soldier quite a while, and I would like to state the life is simply wonderful, the army food is great. I sleep with 97 others in a wooden hut. I love them all, they all love me. It's very lovely, but oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. Oh, how I'd love to remain in bed. For the hardest blow of all is to hear the bugler call. You gotta get up, you gotta get up, you gotta get up this morning. In 1919, Berlin contributed songs to Florenz Ziegfeld's Ziegfeld Follies. 
The Follies were a series of theatrical reviews featuring scantily clad, at least by the standards of the time, scantily clad, beautiful young women singing the hits of the day. They were a Broadway institution and a precursor to the Radio City Music Hall Rockettes. Berlin's involvement marked his full membership in Broadway royalty. Berlin became co-owner of the Music Box Theater in 1921. Between that year and 1924, he penned a series of reviews for the Music Box Theater called the Music Box Review. In the first year, his Say It With Music highlighted his evolving style and mastery of popular music. In 1925, Berlin teamed with George S. Kaufman to produce The Coconuts, starring the Marx Brothers. Noteworthy for a number of tunes, it featured a Berlin classic, Always. Although 1932's Face to Music technically falls after 1930, and therefore is of course not part of the 1920s, it's worth mentioning because of its significance. Teaming up with Moss Hart, Berlin tackled the Great Depression's themes with humor and wit. Songs like Let's Have Another Cup of Coffee encapsulated the era's mood. During the 1920s, Berlin demonstrated an uncanny ability to capture the nation's zeitgeist in his Broadway melodies. Whether capturing the exuberance of the Roaring Twenties or the somber tones of a world at war, Berlin's Broadway musicals affirmed his status as one of America's premier musical talents. Songs like A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody from the Ziegfeld Follies resonated with audiences because Berlin had an ability to tap into the collective American consciousness. He celebrated love, lamented loss, and above all, championed hope. In 1930, he took his genius to Hollywood. While putting on the Ritz was initially introduced in 1929's 915 Review, its movie debut came in the 1930 musical film of the same name. The song's catchy tune and vivid portrayal of Manhattan's high society made it an instant hit. Later versions, especially the 1946 revised version for Fred Astaire, became even more popular, solidifying its status as a classic. Here's a brief clip of Astaire putting on the Ritz. Have you seen the well-to-do up and down Park Avenue on that famous thoroughfare with their noses in the air? High hats and arrow collars, white spats and lots of dollars, spending every dime for a wonderful time. Now if you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Astaire became a staple of Berlin films. In fact, he and Bing Crosby are probably the archetypal Irving Berlin movie stars. It began with 1935's Top Hat. Berlin wrote the entire score for this iconic Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers film, which includes hits like Cheek to Cheek. Astaire, singing this romantic ballad, illustrated Berlin's ability to craft emotionally powerful and memorable melodies. Berlin did it again in 1936, teaming up with the Starin Rogers for Follow the Fleet. Among the film's standout songs was Let's Face the Music and Dance. There may be trouble ahead But while there's moonlight and music and love and romance Let's face the music and dance Before the fiddlers have fled 
Before they ask us to pay the bill And while we still have the chance Let's face the music and dance Using Berlin's catalog of hits as its backbone, celebrating Berlin's first big hit in 1911, 1938's Alexander's Ragtime Band was a fictionalized version of Berlin's life. Other Berlin hits during the 1940s included 1946's Blue Skies and Annie Get Your Gun. Starring Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire, in addition to the film's title hit, Blue Skies, it also featured Astaire dancing to Putting on the Ritz, one of the classic set pieces in Hollywood musical history. Back on Broadway, loosely based on the life of sharpshooter Annie Oakley, Berlin wrote Annie Get Your Gun when the original composer, his friend Jerome Kern, suddenly died. It features two iconic American tunes, There's No Business Like Show Business, sung memorably by Ethel Merman, and Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, a singing duet duel between Annie Oakley and her husband, Frank Butler. Here's a clip of Merman's trademark, No Business Like Show Business. There's no business like show business, like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing, everything the traffic will allow. Nowhere could you get that happy feeling when you are stealing that extra bow. There's no people like show people. They smile when they are low. Yesterday they told you you would not go far. That night you open and there you are. Next day on your dressing room, they've hung a star. Let's go. Berlin's dominance of Hollywood musicals in the 1940s and early 1950s also included 1949's Easter Parade, starring Judy Garland and, yet again, Fred Astaire. Of course, it featured Berlin's Easter Parade. 1954's White Christmas, a remake and a slightly altered form of 1942's Holiday Inn, was Berlin's last major hit. He did produce a number of other musicals in the late 1950s and early 1960s, uh, most memorably 1962's Mr. President, which he wrote at the age of 74. Let's conclude this episode, however, by taking a close look at 1943's This is the Army's connection to the Berlin classic God Bless America and 1942's Holiday Inn's White Christmas. Holiday Inn is a milestone in Berlin's Hollywood career. Not only did he write all the film songs, but it introduced White Christmas, sung by Bing Crosby. Although Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You now ranks as America's most popular Christmas tune, the most popular Christmas movie song remains Irving Berlin's White Christmas. In fact, it is the best-selling single of all time. Bing Crosby's version alone has sold over 31 million copies. White Christmas debuted on Crosby's Craft Music Hall show on Christmas Day, 1941. It then reappeared in Holiday Inn. The film features the usual boy-meets-loses-wins-girl plot, which unfolds at a Connecticut farm transformed into an inn which celebrates each of the year's holidays with a song and dance review. White Christmas's success came as a surprise to Berlin, who thought the tune he wrote for Valentine's Day, Be Careful, It's My Heart, would be the one moviegoers left the theater humming. 
White Christmas won Berlin's only Oscar. Its immense popularity grew even more after the 1954 release of White Christmas, a film loosely based on Holiday Inn. Unlike most Christmas songs, White Christmas is a sad song. Its singer, Far From Home, yearns for a Christmas just like the ones I used to know. White Christmas's pathos springs from two sources. Note the dates of its first performance in the movie's release. Crosby sang it on the radio a mere two weeks after Pearl Harbor. It was a December of gloom, as everyone intuited the coming storm. It also spoke metaphorically of Berlin's own loss. The exact date of its composition is unknown. What is known is that Berlin's infant, three-week-old son, died on December 25, 1928. Every year thereafter, Berlin and his wife visited their son's grave on Christmas Day. For Irving Berlin, Christmas Day was a day of sorrow. White Christmas became more than just a holiday classic. With its themes of nostalgia, hope, and longing, it struck a chord with soldiers overseas during World War II and their families back home. The song's universal appeal highlighted Berlin's ability to touch the hearts of everyone, regardless of race, creed, ethnicity, or whatever. Berlin wrote for all Americans. Berlin's music was more than just catchy tunes. It became a reflection of America's evolving identity. Maybe no Berlin song does that better than 1938's God Bless America. It emerged as an anthem of resilience, capturing a nation's spirit amidst economic depression and looming global conflict. This song, more than any other, showcased Berlin's transformation from a wide-eyed immigrant to a champion of his adopted homeland's ideals. Berlin wrote God Bless America in 1918 during World War I while serving in the army. But he did not use it in Yip Yip Yifank, the musical he was preparing to aid the war effort. With Hitler on the rise in 1938, Berlin revived God Bless America as a peace song. Kate Smith featured it on an Armistice Day broadcast of her highly popular radio show. Berlin added an introduction that Smith always used. While the storm clouds gather far across the sea, let us swear allegiance to the land that's free. Let us all be grateful for a land so fair as we raise our voices in a solemn prayer. Here is Kate Smith singing, God Bless America.
What was the reception? Mixed. Anti-Semitic bigots like the Ku Klux Klan opposed it because Berlin was Jewish. In 1943, Smith sang it in Berlin's patriotic musical, This is the Army. Berlin gave the song's royalties to the God Bless America Fund for redistribution to Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts in New York City. During the 1950s, the song was a regular feature of Kate Smith's NBC television series. God Bless America had fans on both the political left and right. It was used at both 1950s-era civil rights and organized labor rallies. In the 1960s, Christian conservatives began to use it to oppose America's growing secular liberalism and to support the Vietnam War. In the 1970s, the Philadelphia Flyers played Smith's version at home hockey games, which spurred other sports teams to do the same. A more melodious tune than the Star-Spangled Banner, at times advocates have promoted God Bless America as an alternative national anthem. Irving Berlin's life testifies to the transformative power of music and the enduring promise of the American dream. His immigrant roots enriched his compositions, offering a fresh perspective on familiar themes. In turn, his songs offered him a portal into the heart of American society, allowing a Jewish immigrant from Russia to become one of the most celebrated composers in American history. Berlin's music is more than just notes on a page. It's a chronicle of a nation and its people. In his melody and lyrics, we find the joy, sorrows, hopes, and dreams of America. Through his songs, Irving Berlin ensured that his personal American story, the story of an immigrant finding his voice and identity in a new land, would forever be a part of the American tapestry. Today, although we played clips of some great Berlin hit tunes, next month in the American Tapestry Project's February episode, we'll ask and answer, what are the top ten Irving Berlin hits not named White Christmas or God Bless America. And, rather than clips, we'll play the entire song sung by the artist whose version defines the tune in its times. That's next month on The American Tapestry Project. The American Tapestry, rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals and to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Dvorak's String Quartet No. 12 in F Major from the European Archive and Bach's Harpsichord Concerto in D by the Collegium Musicum of Paris are both courtesy of MuseOpen.org, which provides recordings, sheet music, and textbooks to the public for free without copyright restrictions. The Old Time School Bells from Freesound.org, a huge collaborative audio database released under Creative Commons licenses that allow reuse. Remember, past episodes can be found on the WQLN website, NPR One, Spotify, Google, and other podcast sites. Comments and questions can be sent to me at roth at jeserie.org. Thank you.